I thought the and new theory was that there's very little difference between men and women, and so why wouldn't a men's jury be there? Well, period? I'm not aware of that new theory. Welcome back to the third full episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. I'm coming to you from a tiny cabin in the woods of Virginia for this episode, for what I've been jokingly calling Podcation 2019. Um, I didn't use enough of my vacation time last year, and I resolved to take some vacay this year. And so just based on briefing schedules, I chose this random week in February to come out solo to the woods and focus on the podcast. There's no Wi-Fi, so I brought my library of RBG and Burger Court books and my RBG briefs with me out here for this weird millennial Walden. And keeping true to that uh, millennial Walden theme, I have Instagrammed my beautiful little cabin, um, as well as some hike photos from when I took hikes in the mountains and what else listen to Ginsburg oral arguments because I'm officially obsessed with this side project. Okay, so today's case is Edwards versus Healy, which is about women's duty to serve on juries. Edwards versus Healy involved a Louisiana law. In Louisiana, only men were called upon for jury service. Women would not be called upon for jury service unless they affirmatively opted in by filing a written declaration with the clerk of the court that Yes, I am available for jury duty. Unsurprisingly, this jury selection scheme resulted in the almost total absence of women on juries in the state of Louisiana. So as a Ginsburg Tapes listener, you already know all about two cases that Ginsburg argued before the Supreme Court. Frontiero versus Richardson, which we explored in the first full episode, and Con versus Shevin, which we explored in the second. In both of those cases, in Frontiero and in Con. Ginsburg got involved in the case once it reached the Supreme Court. This makes sense because these cases were coming up at the court in the early 1970s, when Ginsburg was making the transition from the important but dry subject of civil procedure to becoming one of the foremost architects of the women's rights movement as it was being played out in the courts. But this case was timed in a way that Ginsburg was able to be involved from the very beginning, and she argued it before a three-judge panel in the Eastern District of Louisiana. And so as background for this case, I'm going to discuss Ginsburg's argument before the district court, and then I'll roll the tapes on her oral argument once this case reached the Supreme Court. Ginsburg lucked out with this totally awesome, star-studded, liberal panel of judges in her district court case in New Orleans. One of the judges was Judge Skelly Wright who was an important leader during the New Orleans school desegregation crisis, who went on to become a famous chief judge of the D.C. Circuit. And when President Carter later appointed Ginsburg to serve as a judge on the D.C. Circuit, Chief Judge Skelly Wright swore her in. One of my professors in law school actually clerked for Judge Skelly Wright, and he loved to tell stories about him. The one story that I remember, and I hope I'm not botching this, was that in one case that my professor was working on, um, he told Judge Skelly Wright, I think the law says X, but I think Y is really the just result. And Judge Wright ruled Y. And he apparently told my professor, who was then a clerk, they can't catch me every time. What he's basically saying is the Supreme Court isn't going to review every case that I decide. So sometimes I'm just going to do what I think is right. And this statement is very apropos of the fate of Edwards versus Healy before that three-judge panel in the district court. Another judge on the panel was Judge Minor Wisdom, who was a liberal Republican who would go on to become one of the Fifth Circuit Four, four judges on the Fifth Circuit who became known for a series of decisions crucial in advancing the civil and political rights of African Americans. The third judge on the panel was Alvin Rubin, who also went on to become a Fifth Circuit judge and who was also known for his civil rights opinions, and he wrote the opinion in this case. So Ginsburg totally won the lottery uh, with this three-judge panel down in the South for her challenge to this Louisiana constitutional provision. And Ginsburg must have known that she won the lottery on the day of her oral argument. When Ginsburg stepped up to the podium, Judge Rubin said, Mrs. Ginsburg, I think we grasped the points in your brief. But if there's something you feel a burning need to add, please do so. Ginsburg overcame the temptation to show off all of her hours of preparation. She bit her tongue and she said, not on the merits, and she rested her case. That turned out to be a wise decision because Judge Rubin was signaling that oral argument was unnecessary because he was already persuaded by Ginsburg's argument. This was a very surprising development because 12 years earlier, 
the Supreme Court had decided Hoyt versus Florida. In that case, an all-male jury had convicted Gwendolyn Hoyt of second-degree murder when she killed her husband, bashing him with a baseball bat. Gwendolyn Hoyt was abused by her husband, but the all-male jury rejected her defense of temporary insanity, which was the only defense available to her. Hoyt's lawyers challenged her conviction. They argued that the trial against her was unfair because there were no women on the jury. Hoyt's lawyers challenged a Florida law almost identical to the one at issue in Edwards versus Healy, which did not require women to serve on juries. Women would only serve if they affirmatively volunteered. On appeal to the Supreme Court, the famously liberal Warren Court unanimously rejected the challenge to the Florida law. The Warren Court reasoned that whatever progress women had made, woman is still regarded as the center of home and family life. This is such an explicit statement from the Supreme Court about their view of, their expectation of, women's role in American life. So we have this Supreme Court decision almost directly on point saying that a volunteers-only scheme for women's service on jury is constitutional. Amazingly, this three-judge panel in New Orleans, no less, rules for Ginsburg in spite of this dead-on Supreme Court precedent. It's even possible that as these three judges sat around a conference table debating the relative merits of this case, Judge Skelly Wright tried to convince his colleagues they can't catch us every time. Or even better, they'll catch us and this burger court will write the Warren courts wrong. As to whether this case was properly decided by Hoyt, Judge Rubin wrote, When today's vibrant principle is obviously in conflict with yesterday's sterile precedent, courts need not follow the outgrown dogma. That's one way for a district court judge to deal with a square-on Supreme Court case that they think was decided incorrectly. And you probably aren't surprised that we're going to hear from the justices in this Supreme Court oral argument that they found this district court opinion to be quite cavalier. Judge Rubin also deftly handled an issue that the Supreme Court justices are really going to struggle with in today's tape. If women are really equal to men, then why aren't the two sexes interchangeable for the purposes of jury service? He wrote, First, is there a difference between men and women? The answer, indubitably, is yes. Second, does it follow that the stature of men and women as community citizens should differ? No, he concluded. He wrote that females as individuals bring to juries qualities of human nature and varieties of human experience that are different from those of men and a diversity of temperament among themselves completely heterogeneous. Their absence from jury panels is significant not because all women react alike, but because they contribute a distinctive medley of views influenced by differences in biology, cultural impact, and life experience, indispensable if the jury is to comprise a cross-section of the community. But there's a really important distinction between Ginsburg's case in Edwards v. Healy and the Supreme Court's prior decision in Hoyt. Gwendolyn Hoyt was on trial for murder, so she was a criminal defendant. But all of Ginsburg's clients are civil litigants, they're litigants who are enmeshed in some sort of civil dispute. And this distinction is significant for a bunch of reasons. One of those reasons is a little something called the Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment guarantees all criminal defendants a right to trial by an impartial jury. And the Supreme Court has interpreted that impartial jury requirement to mean that the jury must be drawn from a representative cross-section of the community. But the Sixth Amendment does not apply in the civil context. So Ginsburg is going to have to rely on the 14th Amendment rather than the Sixth Amendment to argue that her clients, these civil litigants, are entitled to a jury that includes women. Edwards was argued in tandem with a case called Taylor v. Louisiana, which involved a challenge to the same Louisiana jury scheme, but in the criminal context. So keep Taylor on the back of your mind as we break down today's argument, because the justices are definitely thinking about Edwards and Taylor as a pair. Before rolling the tape, here's an update on some important developments at the Supreme Court. This oral argument was taking place on October 16, 1974, about six months after the court issued their decision in Conn v. Shevin, Ginsburg's only loss. But the 1974 term, which is the term for this oral argument, is sometimes called the term of the woman because the Supreme Court heard a bunch of sex equality cases, including cases pertaining to women's service on juries, as in this case in Taylor, women earning social security, 
as in Weinberger versus Weissenfeld, which we're going to focus on in the next episode, and even parents' obligations to female children. And interestingly, the term of the woman was on display in the Supreme Court in more ways than one. This term, for the first time, there were four women who were selected to serve as Supreme Court clerks. Because each justice gets four law clerks, and the chief justice I think even gets five, I know the fact that four women are serving as law clerks doesn't sound particularly groundbreaking. But this was almost as many in one term as there had been for the whole history of the Supreme Court. Justices Marshall, Blackman, Powell, and Brennan each had one female clerk. And there's a story there, a really interesting one, in Justice Brennan's hiring. And I think this discussion of Brennan's hiring practices dovetails with an important discussion of the Supreme Court's current hiring practices. And I'm going to put this discussion at the end of this episode, so I don't totally derail what we're focusing on here today. I think you'll notice that Ginsburg is very self-assured in today's tape. For her third oral argument before the Supreme Court, Ginsburg wore a bright red suit with a matching ribbon in her hair, and I am feeling those bold vibes as I listen back to this tape. On the other side of the podium is Kendall Vick. Kendall Vick makes this argument entertaining. For us, not for him. (laughs) Vick argued first, but I'm going to lead, as I always do, with Ginsburg's oral argument. Because this oral argument is a bit all over the place and focuses on a lot of threshold issues, I'll just focus on two key themes. But if I skip any part of the oral argument, I'll let you know what I'm skipping and I'll summarize it for you. The first theme that I'm going to focus on is contained in the title of this episode, Make Us Serve, because I think this case is an apt illustration of a critical component of Ginsburg's strategy. Equal rights for women under law requires equal duties for women under law, including the duty to serve on juries. Because for women to be truly equal in American society, Laws that accord them special exemptions from their duties to serve must be struck down. And much of this oral argument will focus on whether the court should overturn Hoyt, its decision of just 13 years earlier, where it upheld the all-male jury for Gwendolyn Hoyt under the reasoning that women should be free from the duty to serve because they remain the center of home and family life. And in addition to focusing on women's equal duties, I'm going to focus on what it means to have a fair jury of your peers and why Ginsburg believes that people enmeshed in civil litigation as opposed to criminal litigation are entitled to juries that include women. All right, so let's roll the tape. The court's first question to Ginsburg is about whether her case is moot. A moot case is kind of like a moot point. If a case is moot, it means there's no longer a live dispute. And Louisiana is arguing that this case is moot because their legislature is going to amend their constitution and get rid of this jury scheme that Ginsburg is challenging. Because this argument is super long, though, I'm just going to play a short clip of that exchange and then summarize it for you so we can roll up our sleeves and get into the nitty gritty of these constitutional issues. Unless and until something comes from the Supreme Court or from the legislature, there is uh, nothing on which to base a change. There's just a constitutional provision. It's absence of a constitutional provision where there was one before. Hoyt v. Florida, there was no constitutional provision involved. There was just a statute. What does what will the new constitution say about jury service, Ms. It will say simply, uh, and this is practically verbatim from the text, all citizens who have reached the age of majority are eligible for jury service. Women are now eligible for jury service. And then it authorizes the legislature to provide, and the expression is additional qualifications, and it directs the Louisiana Supreme Court to provide by rule for exemption. What if neither of those bodies act, and you simply have the constitutional provision and nothing else? What's the clerk of a typical... Likely still to follow the statute, Louisiana Code of Criminal Procedure 402, which says that uh, you don't put women on the list unless they register. That statute would still be in force unless the legislature acts. Well, wouldn't it be inconsistent with the constitutional provision that says all persons are eligible? All persons are eligible for jury service. Well, all citizens are eligible for jury service in Louisiana now. It isn't a question of women's ineligibility. The question is whether they are to. Uh, be accorded an exemption under which they are not put on the list unless they affirmatively come in and volunteer for service. 
To really understand the nature of Ginsburg's challenge and this question as to whether this case is moot, I think it's important to know what the Louisiana law said. The Louisiana Constitution stated, The legislature shall provide for the election and drawing of competent and intelligent jurors for the trial of civil and criminal cases. Provided, however, that no woman shall be drawn for jury service unless she has previously filed with the clerk of the district court a written declaration of her desire to be subject to such service. In other words, women can't be called upon for jury duty unless they affirmatively volunteer. And there was also a state statute on the books that similarly stated that a woman would not be called upon for jury service unless she affirmatively volunteered. Between the time that the parties briefed this case before the Supreme Court and oral argument, the Louisiana legislature proposed an amendment that would omit the volunteers-only provision from the Louisiana Constitution. And so Louisiana is arguing that this legal change moots the case, that this case is no longer a live case or controversy because there's been an intervening legal change. But Ginsburg is arguing that there are two problems with Louisiana's mootness argument. First, this is just a proposed law. It's scheduled to take place at the start of 1975, and we're in October of 1974. So this controversy is still a live one. And second, this proposed law would merely remove the volunteers-only scheme, but it wouldn't prevent Louisiana from continuing the practice. The new constitution would authorize the Louisiana legislature to provide additional qualifications for jurors, and it was possible that the legislature could qualify women's duty to serve and even enact a scheme identical to the one being challenged here. And I have to say that Justice Rehnquist doesn't sound very prepared for oral argument. You just heard him suggest that Louisiana couldn't continue this practice if the proposed amendment is passed because it would require all persons to be eligible for jury service. But hello, this isn't about women's eligibility for jury service. This is about women's equal duty to serve. In Louisiana, female litigants continue to have cases before juries on which no members of their sex serve. And that is what this case is all about. Before diving into the heart of the sex discrimination at issue in this jury selection scheme, the justices pressed Ginsburg on another threshold issue, standing. Standing is another doctrine that's designed to ensure that litigants are presenting an actual case or an actual controversy, as opposed to an ideological or theoretical suit. And this doctrine is really inherent in the role of courts, because we don't want our courts to be deciding matters of policy that are better left to the political branches. Here, Ginsburg is representing three classes who all challenge this jury selection scheme, and she argues that all three classes have standing. The first class are women excluded from the responsibility of serving on juries. She argued that this jury selection scheme rendered these women members of the second sex, persons whose assistance in the administration of justice is not needed by the community. The second class is males eligible for jury service who are subject to a double burden because similarly situated females are not required to serve as they are. And the third class is female litigants in civil cases in state court who are unable to have their cases tried before a jury drawn from a representative cross-section of the community because women, 53% of the population of persons eligible for service, are almost totally absent from the jury pool. Ginsburg argued that all three of these groups have standing to bring the suit, that they're injured by Louisiana's jury scheme, that their injury was caused by the scheme, and that their injury would be redressable or fixable by a ruling in their favor. A ruling striking down this jury selection scheme for denying due process of law and equal protection of law under the 14th Amendment. Now that the justices have pressed both mootness and standing, Justice Potter Stewart is going to lead with a question that seems to be on these justices' minds. It's about that surface-level inconsistency that I mentioned in the introduction. If women and men are the same, then what does it matter if women serve on juries? And Ginsburg is justifiably frustrated with these justices' failure to understand her central points, and I think you'll really hear that frustration come through in the next clip. And if you listen even closer, I think you'll hear a justice mutter under his breath, that's a low blow. What, what is their claimed damage? What is their claimed injury? Well, two claims. Uh, one, that they are denied equal protection 
as any other well-defined group would be, uh, by the total absence of their peers from the jury. I thought the new theory was that there's very little difference between men and women, and so why wouldn't a men jury be there? Well, I'm not aware of that new theory. I subscribe, and I think most people do, to a theory uh, announced by one of the justices some years ago in Ballard against the United States, that the two sexes are not fungible, that the absence of either may make the jury even less representative of the community than it would be if an economic or a racial group were excluded. What was the other injury you said? One was denial of equal protection to... And the other is denial of of due process, the right of every litigant who is subject to jury trial to a jury that is drawn from a representative cross-section of the community. That is a right of all litigants, uh, male or female, to that jury composed of a representative cross-section. So if you listen to the mini-episode on the pregnancy discrimination cases of the 1970s, Justice Potter Stewart is top of mind because he authored most of those cases. And here, he's basically saying, hey, feminist lady who keeps showing up in the Supreme Court, I thought you were trying to tell us that men and women are exactly the same. What gives? The theory is not that men and women are the same. The theory is that men and women deserve equal treatment under law. That includes laws that purport to benefit women, like in this case, where the law is designed to unburden women from their duty to serve on juries. But the reality is that by keeping women off juries in such high numbers, this Louisiana constitutional provision is furthering and cementing women's status as belonging in the home, far away from the scary, messy, complicated things that happen in court that women are too delicate and too fragile to bear. In the next clip, you'll hear Ginsburg take on case after case that remained good law at the time of this oral argument where the court treated women as second-class citizens for the purposes of jury service, including Hoyt, including an 1879 decision saying that it's constitutional to combine jury duty to men, and a decision stating that states are only required to enforce women's right to vote, and that no aspect of women's participation in the political community is otherwise required. On the merits, Hoyt against Florida, upheld the statute virtually identical to the scheme at issue here. And indeed, this court has not yet explicitly reconsidered its 1880 dictum in Strouda against West Virginia, 100 U.S. at 310, that a state may constitutionally confine jury duty to males. After Strouda, but before Hoyt in 1947, in Favey, New York, 332 U.S., the the Blue Ribbon jury was contested, but also New York's automatic exemption of women. Uh, The court upheld that women-only exemption, and in the process indicated that women might be beyond the pale of the 14th Amendment. The majority opinion in Fay asserts that though there may be no logical reason for differential treatment of men and women for jury service purposes, the states are constitutionally compelled to acknowledge only one aspect of women's full membership in the political community, her 19th Amendment right to vote. The Fay Court was relying exclusively on the fact that well into the 20th century, it was the virtually universal practice in the United States to allow only men to sit on juries. Appellants had asserted in their jurisdictional statement, and appellees agree, that this case presents an appropriate occasion for the court to articulate guidelines and standards with respect to the equal amenability of women and men to jury service because this court's own past pronouncements have operated not merely to sanction women-only jury service exemptions, dubious from the start, but to impede change long overdue though a majority of states now treat jury service as a basic civil right as well as a fundamental civic responsibility. Is Louisiana, uh, Louisiana is unique, as I understand it from the briefs, is it not? In, in the registration system, there are six other states 
they have one slight variant on that. Women are placed in the jury pool, but they are exempt simply because they are women. And then there are several other states that have a range of women-only exemptions. And these exemptions <coughs> persist well into the 1970s, and challenges to them are rejected summarily by both federal and state courts. On the basis of Hoyt, as well. Yes, then Hoyt is precedent. In reciting this litany of cases exempting women from their duty to serve, Ginsburg is trying to say to the court, write this wrong. She seems to be saying, is this really the America you think is required by our Constitution? Justice Stewart is now going to take us on a little bit of a detour away from these constitutional questions, and he's going to ask Ginsburg about the status of the Equal Rights Amendment, which we discussed on the first episode in Breaking Down Frontier versus Richardson. Remember that the Equal Rights Amendment would have stated that equal rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. And as you may remember from that episode, at the time of the Frontier Oral Argument, the ERA looked very promising. But that by the time of this argument in 1974, the future of the Equal Rights Amendment was not looking good. What's the uh, present status, Mrs. Ginsburg, of the uh, proposed Equal Rights Amendment to the Constitution of the United States? Do the proposed know? amendment has been ratified by 33 states. Um, the period in which ratification is open runs until 1979. 79? Yes. And it requires uh, how many states? 38. 38. It's been ratified by 30? 33. 3. That include the two that have withdrawn? No, no. That's a a question uh, not appropriate to go into at this point, but two have purported to withdraw their ratification. Two, and you're including those two in the 33? No, I am not. It would be 31 if those withdrawals were effective. But you are including those two in the 33. I I am including them, yes, correct, yes. Uh, So there are at least uh, five to go between now and 1979. At least five. And if you accept the argument that withdrawal is effective, then seven. Oh. How many course, have uh, affirmatively uh, rejected it? I don't know what the count is on that. A number of states have rejected it, but that doesn't that's not binding. A state that once rejects, I think that's... Can later approve. Yes. So yes. long as it's done before 1979 yes. or by the, the date of 1979. Yes. And, of course, uh, as would be expected, the states that have already ratified were states in which the ratification campaigns were easier than the, mm-hmm. uh, the remaining the, um, states. I ask that because I'm reminded that there was a, some discussion of uh, that proposed amendment in the Frontiero uh, opinion. Yes. Yes. The progress has been slow since the Frontiero opinion uh, on ratification. Since or because of I think unrelated. You think what? Unrelated. Uh-huh just heard Justice Potter Stewart say, I remember that this came up in the Frontier oral argument. And I'm kind of sitting here thinking, yeah, I hope you remember because you totally derailed strict scrutiny review based not on your view of the law, but on your assessment of what the political branches were going to do because you thought that it looked likely that the Equal Rights Amendment would pass. Remember that in Frontier, Justice Potter Stewart declined to join the Frontier Four. The four justices who would have held that laws discriminating on the basis of sex should be held to strict scrutiny review. And instead of joining that four, making it a binding opinion with five justices, Justice Potter Stewart chose to file a one-sentence concurrence because he thought the ERA would pass and he thought the court wouldn't need to decide whether laws discriminating on the basis of sex should be held to strict scrutiny review. And by missing that one vote, the frontier plurality was never binding law, and the court never got five votes for strict scrutiny. So yeah, that was Justice Potter Stewart, who was just checking in with Ginsburg about the status of the ERA. In the intervening time between the Frontiero oral argument and this oral argument, only three states had ratified the law. And after 1973, support in the states that have not ratified fell below 50%. And as I noted in the first episode, a few states actually voted to revoke their original ratification of the ERA. By the time of this oral argument, two states had already voted to rescind their ratifications, Nebraska and Tennessee. This change was especially surprising 
because both parties had supported the Equal Rights Amendment for more than 20 years. But at this time in the mid-70s, the religious right is burgeoning as a real political force in American life. And this growing political movement also trumpeted traditional values. Enter Phyllis Schlafly and the Stop ERA movement, which we discussed in the first episode. And a huge part of this Stop ERA movement's political success came from stoking fears about losing exactly the kinds of laws that Ginsburg is challenging in court. Those laws which on their face were designed to benefit women by protecting them or by according them special privileges, such as keeping them out of jury duty, giving them extra spousal benefits, giving them extra benefits when widowed. And this one is really politically popular, stopping women from being conscripted in wartime. Stop ERA movement campaigners wore buttons that said things like, I'm for mom and apple pie. And for the ERA to become an amendment to the U.S. Constitution, they needed 38 ratifications by 1979. So they needed five more states, if you include the states that had rescinded their ratifications, because it was an open question then, and it remains an open question today, whether a state can even rescind their ratification once it's been rendered. The justices were wondering what role, if any, Ginsburg thinks that their decision in Frontiero had installing this political movement. Ginsburg said they're unrelated, and I think that's the right response, because her goal is to keep the court's eye on the prize. She wants them to keep their heads down, looking right at the text of the Constitution. You see that? It says equal, and I think that word equal includes equal rights and equal duties for both sexes. And I really want to do a mini-episode on renewed discussions about ratifying the ERA, which presents a lot of interesting constitutional and political questions. For now, I'll just mention that the past couple years have seen a revival in discussions about the ERA. Two states actually recently ratified the amendment, Nevada and Illinois. And Virginia's Senate has ratified the amendment several times, and if its House ratifies it, then we'll have a total of 38 states. There's a lot of people working very hard on getting ratification in Virginia. If that is obtained, then it'll start a discussion both about the constitutionality of rescissions and this shot clock, because there's a question whether this 1979 deadline really applies. Ginsburg will now change the subject away from politics. She's going to try to focus the justices on the historical context for women's duty to serve on juries. That though the Latin word homo referred to members of both sexes, the female was of course excluded from jury service because of the defects of her sex. And that pattern was accepted in 19th century, even early 20th century United States. Why should the women serve on juries when they couldn't vote or hold office? When many of them, the married women, were subject to a range of legal disabilities that drastically curtailed their scope of activity. Hoyt, decided just 13 years ago, is not susceptible to the same kind of historical interpretation, but it may be explained on the basis of an assumption, apparently indulged by the court, that the volunteers-only system might yet yield substantial female participation. The system had been in effect in Florida only some 10 years at the time Hoyt was tried, until 1949, Florida limited jury service exclusively to men. The three concurring justices were unable to say, based on the Hoyt record, that Florida failed to make an effort to have women perform jury duty, and the majority opinion suggests that Appellant Hoyt had not ruled out other circumstances or chance as one of the reasons for the paucity of women jurors. But in the instant case, it is not disputed that the Louisiana selection system and only that system, not other circumstances and not chance, produces jury lists that rarely include any woman's name. Based on the stipulated facts, the court below found that Louisiana's benign dispensation, not chance, yields jury panels that never include more than 5% women and frequently less. So Ginsburg just explained the origins of the practice of keeping women off juries and the modern-day continuation of those practices. On the origins, Ginsburg pointed to English common law, which is the basis for early American law. And under English common law, women were deemed unfit to serve on juries under this doctrine called propter defectum sexus, which means a defect of sex. 
Ginsburg also pointed to Strader versus West Virginia, which is an 1879 case where the Supreme Court confirmed that the Constitution permits a state to confine jury service to males. And Ginsburg draws a straight line from those early cases to the court's recent decision in Hoyt, where the court reasoned that women ought to be excused from jury service as they still are regarded as a center of home and family life. You heard her say that in Hoyt, the justices reasoned that the opt-in system could work if the state made a good faith effort to get women to serve. But clearly, that good faith effort has fallen short in Louisiana, where less than 5% of jurors are women. So I'm going to skip some additional back and forth between Ginsburg and the justices about standing and mootness, and cut to the part of the argument dealing with Louisiana's justifications for this law, and whether those justifications are sufficient to withstand constitutional scrutiny. Finally, I'd like to deal with the purported justifications for Hoyt uh, that I heard in Louisiana and uh, in federal and state courts passing on similar, though slightly less extreme, exemptions. Two points are made. One, it's administratively convenient to exclude the women as a class, and the other is we must be concerned with family stability. As far as the administrative convenience of a lump exemption over individual hardship excuse is concerned, this court's decisions in Reed v. Reed, 404 U.S., and Frontier v. Richardson, 411 U.S., should be dispositive. Administrative ease is not sufficient to justify legislative resort to a gender criterion. With respect to ensuring the care of dependents, particularly small children, the women-only exemption is appallingly overbroad and stereotypically under-inclusive. Overbroad because it includes the childless woman, the woman whose children are grown, the woman who can provide without hardship for care consistent with her family's needs while she's away from home. And under-inclusive because it does not encompass men among them, widowed fathers, husbands with incapacitated wives, whose presence at home may be essential to the family's well-being. But the total irrationality of the Louisiana classification is demonstrated by census data and labor market statistics. Focusing on the statistics for Louisiana set out at pages 18 and 19 of our brief, in 1970, 59% of Louisiana's total adult female population had no children under 18, and of the 41% with children under 18, 37% were in the labor force. Thus, for nearly three-quarters of the population covered by this benign dispensation, child care is not a factor determining involvement in civic responsibility or in employment outside the home. National statistics are similar. Ginsburg just addressed Louisiana's two justifications for its jury selection scheme. First, Louisiana argued that it's administratively convenient to exclude women as a class and just deal with men. And second, Louisiana argued that this jury selection scheme is justified because women are preoccupied with child care duties. You're a Ginsburg Tate's listener, so the first justification for the law, administrative convenience, sounds all too familiar to you. The government tried the same tact in both Reed versus Reed and Frontiero. And one thing that really stuck with me from the Frontiero plurality opinion was that quote, something like, administrative convenience is not a shibboleth, the mere recitation of which dictates constitutionality. Okay, so Louisiana's second justification for the law, that women are busy taking care of children, also raises a whole host of problems, many of which are just factual problems. As Ginsburg just explained, the assumption that women are at home taking care of children is overbroad to a fault. Of the adult women in Louisiana around this time, 59% had no children under 18, and of those 59%, more than a third were working. So at this point in the oral argument, the justices are still struggling with what to do with Hoyt, that on-point precedent. And they're going to continue to probe Ginsburg about her treatment of Hoyt and, and I think this is justifiable, about the district court's treatment of Hoyt. Hoyt against Florida was decided uh, a little less than uh, 13 years ago. Yes. And it was a unanimous court. Yes. Um, 
You seem to treat it fairly cavalierly, uh, talking about its purported uh, justification and so on. Well, I think that there were two reasons I did not intend to be cavalier. There was the point that, uh, well, two points. One, there was no assurance at that time that this system would, in fact, produce no women. The three concurring justices indicated that, that maybe Florida, if Florida makes a good faith effort to try to get women, women will serve. Later, I think it's been acknowledged that as a practical matter, a volunteers-only system, whether it's offered to men or women, will lead to virtual absence of that group from the jury. People simply do not, most people, do not volunteer uh, for what they might regard as a burdensome civic responsibility. That was one aspect of it. The other aspect of it was that the uh, statistics in Hoyt, not the same as those presented here, in addition to the, the, uh, the tremendous increase, even in this short period of time, women's participation in the labor force, <clears throat> the Hoyt Court never adverted to all the unemployed women who do not have child care responsibilities. That was another factor. And a third factor was the concentration in Hoyt on the woman as potential juror. This was a benign dispensation, a favor to her. She could serve if she wanted to, but she had no responsibility to serve. In that respect, it was somewhat like uh, Chevin against Kahn, wasn't it? Well, if I may take a cue from Mr. Justice Brennan on that, uh, his remark yesterday, uh, Kahn against Chevin was a tax case and the dominant theme of that opinion is the large leeway for line drawing permitted to the states in making tax classifications. But what the focus on women jurors caused the court to lose sight of what should have been the principal focus. That action, uh, in that action, the defendant's crime was committed after an altercation in which she claimed her husband had insulted and humiliated her to the breaking point, convicted of second-degree murder by an all-male jury, she believed that women jurors might better understand her state of mind when she picked up a baseball bat and administered the blow that led to the litigation. Court did not focus on denials of equal protection and due process to Ms. Hoyt. The focus was on the, the, the benign nature of a classification to women as jurors rather than the unfairness to the litigant. Justice Stewart just suggested that Ginsburg was reading Hoyt cavalierly, and Ginsburg dodged that blow by pivoting to why she thinks that Hoyt is different from her case. First, the justices in Hoyt suggested that if the state made a good faith effort to try and get women to serve, the scheme may pass constitutional muster. But time has proven that volunteers-only schemes will lead to an almost total absence of women, whether in good faith or not. Second, women are entering the workforce in increasing numbers, so it's no longer rational to assume that they're at home, assume that they're taking care of children. Third, Hoyt focused on women as the potential juror, not as here, where Ginsburg has zoomed out and she's also representing men who are subject to a double burden, and women litigants who denied a jury with a representative cross-section of their peers. Then Ginsburg finally gets the con question, the protective legislation question. Chief Justice Berger jumped in and asked whether this case is like con insofar as it discriminates against women in a way that ultimately serves to protect women. And as we discuss at length in the second episode, the justices really struggle to understand how so-called protective legislation harms women. Instead, they seem to be focused on the short-term benefit. Ginsburg distinguished Kahn on the grounds that it was a tax case, not a case applying broadly to any law distinguishing between men and women that the justices might classify as benign or protective. And that was such an important move for her to make. For Ginsburg to succeed in her quest for equality under the Constitution, Kahn cannot be interpreted to hold that any protective legislation is okay so it's smart that she's trying to limit that case to the tax context. Ginsburg gave some other examples about why this scheme is not truly benign in her brief. One example stood out to me. There's one New York court that held that denying compensation to female teachers who serve on juries while providing compensation to male teachers is reasonable because men are required to serve, but women can avoid jury duty as long as they ask. 
Ginsburg also explained the problems with Hoyt itself. Gwendolyn Hoyt believed that had the jury included women, they might have better understood her state of mind when she picked up the baseball bat that day. And Ginsburg critiqued the court for focusing on what they saw as a benign jury selection scheme in Florida, rather focusing on the denial of equal protection of the laws to Gwendolyn Hoyt herself. Okay, so I'm going to skip a part where Justice Stewart questions Ginsburg about the age limits in the Louisiana law. Basically, Louisiana doesn't require people under 18 or over 75 to serve, and Justice Stewart seemed to want to use that as an example of something that would be inconsistent with Ginsburg's fair cross-section argument. And she bats this away by basically saying, at some point, everybody is under 18 or they could live past 75. And in that way, age is a fundamentally different characteristic from sex. I'm also going to spare you a pretty repetitive exchange between Ginsburg and Justice White at the end of this oral argument. Just to give you a little flavor of this back and forth, his first question was something like, well, Ginsburg, at least we know that Hoyt put to rest any claims that there's something biased about juries without women. And Ginsburg's like, whoa, 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 hold up. Um, I'm not going to agree to that. Justice White also asked Ginsburg about this fair cross-section requirement and how it fits in in the civil context. In Ginsburg's brief, she cites several cases from the 1960s where courts had held that it denied equal protection to exclude identifiable segments of the community from jury panels in the civil context. And her examples are kind of interesting. You can't exclude wage earners, you can't exclude daily laborers, you can't exclude atheists, and you can't exclude Spanish Americans. Ginsburg also argued that strict judicial scrutiny is warranted because this Louisiana jury scheme infringes on a due process right, and that the government has an inadequate justification for this jury scheme to withstand strict scrutiny review. And for this argument, Ginsburg relies on this case called Thiel versus Southern Pacific, which is a 1946 Supreme Court case. Though that case was in the federal context, the court broadly stated that the American tradition of trial by jury, considered in connection with either criminal or civil proceedings, necessarily contemplates an impartial jury drawn from a cross-section of the community. And quoting the district court down in New Orleans in this case, Ginsburg argued that as is true with the absence of members of a particular racial or ethnic group, absence of women from jury panels is significant, not because all women react alike, but because they contribute a distinctive medley of views influenced by differences in biology, cultural impact and life experience that are indispensable if the jury is to comprise a cross-section of the community. All right, so let's close out Ginsburg's oral argument. But I think I'd I'm not sure you need any defense, uh, Mrs. Ginsburg, but your brief and argument was much less cavalier toward white than the three judges of the Fifth Circuit. Thanks for that, Chief Justice Berger. And I mean, it is true, Ginsburg clearly wanted the court to overturn Hoyt. But she didn't go so far as relying on that bold, you-can't-catch-us-every-time language from the district court, which declared Hoyt to be sterile precedent, which is really as cavalier as it gets for a lower court. And forgive me a moment of being a nerdy appellate person, but I bet if you looked up other courts quoting that language from Judge Rubin, you'll find some very interesting and probably cavalier decisions skirting Supreme Court or Court of Appeals precedent. Okay, Kendall Vick, it's your turn. Let's step up to the podium. Kendall Vick actually argued first, and he declined his rebuttal time. But I'm just going to play a really quick exchange between Vick and Justices Marshall and Rehnquist about this proposed change to the Louisiana jury selection scheme. Mr. Vick, what's the status of that draft order? Does the, does the word draft mean it hasn't really been promulgated yet? I dare say... If it pleased the court, it's very much like a draft opinion that you would circulate to your brethren. I checked with uh, the, the director of the Judicial Council and also with Justice Tate, who was the author of this order, on Friday, and he said it was still being circularized to his brother. I might add in, in further answer to your question, Your Honor, I was a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. Justice Tate, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of Louisiana, was a delegate to the convention. He is the author of this draft order, and I have no doubt in my mind that this order will be in substantial form the way it appears here. Furthermore, on Friday... How in the world can you speak for the Supreme Court of Louisiana? 
I, I don't presume to do so, well, I Your you Honor. Said, I don't I presume. I don't presume to do so. I, I was only reflecting. Saying, I was only. I saw that one man is drafted an order, one member of the court, and is circulated. Period. Is that fact? That is a fact. Do we have anything more than that? Uh, as of Friday, I had nothing more, Your Honor. Well, as of today. As of today, nothing more. So Justice Rehnquist asked Vic whether the proposed amendment to the Louisiana Constitution is in draft form. It's a very natural question. He's trying to figure out whether that law is in place and has mootness possibilities for this case. And the correct answer is yes, Justice Rehnquist. This is in a draft form, but it's scheduled to go into effect in just a few months at the start of 1975. So from Vic's perspective, from Louisiana's perspective, this legal change is undoubtedly going to moot this case. Just hold off a few months before you make your decision. But instead, Vic is the ultimate question dodger. He says that the status of the legislation is kind of like when you justices circulate a draft opinion amongst yourselves. And then he makes matters even sweeter when he's like, I was there. I was at this constitutional convention. And so was a justice on the Louisiana Supreme Court who's been working on this, who I know. Justice Marshall steps in and he's like, how is that an answer to the status of legislation? That is not how they do things in SCOTUS, Mr. Vic. The court waited months until Louisiana's volunteer-only scheme for women's jury service was repealed, and the court dismissed the case as moot, so there was never a full decision by the court in Edwards. But remember that Taylor v. Louisiana was argued in tandem. In that case, Billy Taylor was convicted of a heinous crime. He was convicted of aggravated kidnapping for robbing a woman and her daughter and grandson, and then raping her in front of her family members. The all-male jury gave him a death sentence, and his lawyer challenged the same provision of Louisiana Constitution that did not require women to serve on juries. Taylor did not have the mootness problem since the criminal defendant challenging the law would remain in jail. In an 8-to-1 opinion with, you guessed it, Justice Rehnquist dissenting, the court held that the 6th and 14th Amendments prohibited the systematic exclusion of women from juries. Writing for the court, Justice White said, We think it is no longer tenable to hold that women, as a class, may be excluded or given automatic exemptions based solely on sex, if the consequence is that criminal jury veneers are almost totally male. To this extent, we cannot follow the contrary implications of the prior cases, including Hoyt. If it was ever the case that women were unqualified to sit on juries or were so situated that none of them should be required to perform jury service, that time has long since passed. Justice White's opinion in Taylor even seemed to understand the implications of Justice Stewart's question. Isn't the theory that there's little difference between men and women? He wrote, the truth is that the two sexes are not fungible. A community made up exclusively of one is different from a community composed of both. The subtle interplay of influence, one on the other, is among the imponderables. To insulate the courtroom from either may not, in a given case, make one iota of difference. Yet a flavor, a distinct quality, is lost if either sex is excluded. The exclusion of one may indeed make the jury less representative of the community than would be true if an economic or racial group were excluded. Yikes. Uh, okay, well, that's what he wrote. Justice Rehnquist is again the lone dissenter, just as he was in Frontiero. Remember how he told the LA Times that his wife and daughter never pay any attention to anything he does? He criticized the majority for its reasoning as to why women must be included in jury service for there to be a fair cross-section. He said, The best the majority can do is posit a flavor, a distinct quality, which allegedly is lost if either sex is excluded. However, he wrote, This flavor is not of such importance that this constitution is offended if any jury is not so enriched. This smacks more of mysticism than of law. The court does not even purport to practice its mysticism in a consistent fashion. Presumably doctors, lawyers, and other groups whose frequent exemption from jury service is endorsed by the majority also offers qualities as distinct and important as those at issue here. Ginsburg was very pleased with the 8-to-1 decision in Taylor and the court's opinion. But she knew that while criminal defendants would be guaranteed to a trial of a representative cross-section of their peers, 
because her case, because Edwards, was mooted. Civil litigants had not been granted that right. She'll be back in the Supreme Court to fight for women's duty to serve again in Duran versus Missouri, our last episode. Before wrapping up, I'm going to close out something that I mentioned in the introduction. So one of the reasons that this 1974 term is the term of the woman is that there are four women serving as clerks on the Supreme Court. And one of the justices who hired a female law clerk was Justice Brennan. It's no surprise to you as a TGT listener that Justice Brennan is the hero of these sex equality cases. He wrote the frontier of plurality opinion, which would have extended strict scrutiny to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. He wrote a dissent in con. He'll go on to write the opinion of the court in two of the remaining three cases that Ginsburg will win. His rousing, powerful words are with us even today. Remember in Frontiero, he wrote that sex discrimination was rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism, which in practical effect put women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. But in some ways, our liberal hero did not carry out his own words in his own life in chambers. In 1966, a Yale Law School dean wrote Justice Brennan and said that they would send him their best woman to clerk for him. Brennan replied, While I am for equal rights for women, I think my prejudices are still with the male. Four years later, Berkeley Law School called Justice Brennan again to recommend their best, their valedictorian, Allison Gray. Brennan said no. Send me someone else, he said. Three years later, the phone rang again. It was Berkeley. Hire our best, they said. Hire Marsha Burzone, they said. Brennan immediately said no. To his enormous credit, the Berkeley professor, Professor Barnett, tried again. He wrote Justice Brennan the following words. I cannot believe that, on reflection, you will continue a policy that is both unconstitutional and simply wrong. Marcia started in 1974, the term of the woman. Or should I say Judge Berzon, who served our country as a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals since 2000. But Brennan would not hire another woman clerk for seven terms. Between 1973 and 1980, 34 women served as Supreme Court clerks. Brennan employed just one of them. And I think that the court could still use all the Professor Barnett's out there, pushing justices to hire diverse candidates, as diversity remains a major issue in hiring Supreme Court clerks. A National Law Journal study surveying demographics of SCOTUS clerks from 2005 to 2017, found that of the 487 clerks in that period, only about one-third were women, and the lack of racial diversity was worse. Of the 487 clerks, only 20 were African-American, or 4.1%, and only 9 were Hispanic, or 1.8%. And since their appointments on the bench, Justices Ginsburg and Alito have both only hired one African-American clerk. Justices Thomas and Ginsburg have hired only 12% non-white clerks. The Chief Justice has hired only 8% non-white clerks. And Justice Sotomayor's chambers are the most racially diverse, as she's hired 30% non-white clerks. These numbers represent very little progress from the first demographic study of SCOTUS clerks by USA Today in 1998. It's less diverse than law firm associates, and it's less diverse than law schools. To fix it, the legal profession needs all the Professor Barnett's out there pushing justices to hire diverse candidates. But the problem also runs deeper than professors' advocacy for their students. The National Law Journal had a really excellent discussion between Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow, who's done a lot of this work on demographics of SCOTUS clerks, and Supreme Court advocate Neil Kotyal. They discuss how this is part of a broader systemic problem that starts in law school and even earlier. It's a tough topic, and I'm only grazing the surface about how systemic this lack of diversity is in the legal education, in the legal profession, for law clerks, and on the judiciary. For now, I'll just say that I think that there needs to be room to talk about it, room in the conversation for it. We should be able to talk about Justice Brennan's enormous contributions to sex equality in this country, to talk about the life and legacy of a man who Justice Scalia called probably the most influential justice of the 20th century while leaving room to discuss his lack of diversity in hiring in his own chambers. And while the context is obviously very different, the same has to be true about leaving room in the conversation for it when it comes to today's Supreme Court justices, including Justice Ginsburg. The final note I'll add is that the one African-American person who's clerk for Justice Ginsburg 
is Paul Watford. Or should I say Judge Paul Watford, as he served our country as a judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, alongside Judge Marsha Berzone, since his appointment in 2012. Okay, so that's probably enough musing from me for a whole month. Uh, That's a wrap. If you enjoyed this episode, it'd be a huge help if you shared it with a friend, because I think there are definitely some RBG and Supreme Court advocacy fans out there who might enjoy this podcast who haven't yet heard about it. I'd like to thank my good friend, brilliant lawyer, squash aficionado, queen of witty banter, and dominator of any game she's ever played, Callie Schallenberg, for her feedback on a draft of this episode. Next episode, we're going to talk about Ginsburg's favorite case, and for good reason, Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. Until next time, you can catch me at Ginsburg Tapes on Twitter and Instagram. I hope everyone has a wonderful March. <laughs>